0: America has never been so great, but it could be. If the corporations in control gave back everything they stole, we would not be in this ditch, the whole country would be rich. We could have been the best, like the Norway of the West. But instead, from shore to shore We're so homeless and so poor Oh, America Has never been So great But it could be We could have reconciliation In this very divided nation We could have a truth commission Instead of another damn petition We could have a forward leap but such things don't come cheap But what if we seize the shares to each and every billionaire? Oh, America Has never been So great But it could be If we had elections That weren't corporate selections Between one pool and another Yes, if I had my druthers We'd have a party, maybe two That would have the slightest clue This would seem to be essential In a place with such potential Oh, America Has never been So great But it could be If our treaties were obeyed If kids weren't hungry and afraid If class and race and gender Meant more than legal tender If it weren't all run by money It'd be a land of milk and honey If we'd more often make the call To build a bridge and not a wall Oh, America has never been so great But it could be America has never been so great.
1: But it could be. And that was David Rovix with the track America has never been so great. Greetings and welcome to Howie 2020. This is an independent podcast on progressive politics inspired by Bernie Sanders, Howie Hawkins, Angela Walker, progressive and radical activism and the Green Party. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, pack, or political organization. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2020 at gmail.com or follow on Twitter at BernieUS2020. You can find all the back episodes at Bernie-2020.com. You'll also find some links there. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep Howie 2020 free and independent. First up is a story published at Medium.com, written by Mac. Well, what are you going to do then? On Tuesday, August 11, 2020, Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden announced his VP pick, Kamala Harris, to a flurry of mixed reactions online. As with all events that make up the political theater typically observed in our country, there were corners of praise and corners of dissent. On one hand, Harris's nomination symbolizes a potential historic first for a lot of black and South Asian people in this country. It's an opportunity to be represented in the second highest office in the world. But for many like myself, the optics are totally overshadowed by the bleak reality of electing the white supremacist grandfather of mass incarceration and a woman who has unironically self-identified herself as California's, quote, top cop. Under a true democracy, people should be allowed to ask questions. Under a true democracy, people should be allowed space for criticism and dissent. But in the illusion of a democracy that we find ourselves under in the United States where elections cost millions of dollars to participate in, where all parties besides two are rendered virtually invisible, and where the two visible parties pull strings behind the scenes to usher forward uninspiring candidates. Dissent is oddly viewed as life-threatening. We are taught that democracy should be free, but every four years the American people are held at gunpoint and forced to make a decision. Every election becomes, quote, the most important election of our lifetime. When those among us who choose to dissent speak up, we are often met with the same retorts. One that we can constantly depend on is, quote, so what do you want me to do then? I first want to recognize that a lot of times this question is asked from a genuine place. When you are held politically hostage the way we continue to be in this country, we find ourselves destitute and miseducated. People's concerns about the future are real. But more often than not, so what do you want me to do then, is a question asked in bad faith, particularly to leftists, people who identify as communists, socialists, anarchists, or any other faction of the true left who, after lifetimes of study and lived experience, have decided to opt out of the dog-and-pony show that is American electoral politics. It's a question asked to invoke shame, to suggest that we are the true failure of this country, to remind us that if we just took this thing a little more seriously, maybe we'd all be in a better place. The question only serves to further isolate the people. I do not like being asked this question because I know that most people who ask it do not actually want an answer, and most certainly will not like mine. Because the truth is, I don't want you to do anything. I literally just want you to stop. The big issue with being socialized in a patriarchal society, which is to say, a society governed by and constructed in the benefit of men, is that solutions are constantly valued over concrete analysis. We are constantly leaping for solutions to problems that we do not fully understand, and that is why we continue to find ourselves repeating the same mistakes and asking the same questions over and over again. When asking this question, understand that you need new tools. You need a new framework from which to understand the world around you. Dialectical and historical materialism allows us to step back from the noise, the mindlessness of corporate cable news and the nonstop hysteria of social media, and actually evaluate the material conditions around us. They remind us that almost everything in life can be explained when you look at real world conditions and apply the context of history. It asks us to sit with history and evaluate the contradictions that come up in our society. A person constantly asking, so what do you want me to do then, is very far removed from this crucial process of interrogation. I need you to unplug from the theater and join me in struggle and in material evaluation. I need you to take a break from condescension as I invite you into the thought exercise of a lifetime. So, what do, you, what do we do then? To tell you the truth, it would actually be great if you commit to coming back into the streets with us. I want you to abandon individualism for collectivism. I want you to stop ignoring houseless people in your own community. I want you to give them money and food and clothing every chance you get. I want you to band together with your friends and figure out ways to get them off the streets permanently And I want you to study the history of houselessness in your city. I want you to make the safety and security of poor people more important than your own individual career and professional goals. Why are so many people without homes where you live, while so many homes sit empty? What are your local politicians doing to address it, and what is taking them so long? I want you to get so angry about that, that you do something. So what do we do then? To be really honest with you, there are likely hundreds or thousands of people where you live who have been laid off. I think it would be great if you got organized in your city and learned how to do an eviction blockade because millions of people are about to get evicted. Bonus point. It would be really awesome if you have a home that someone who's getting evicted could live in while they work to sort out their life. I'd love it if you stopped shaming people who are receiving the extra $600 a week in unemployment benefits, which has, since this story, expired and not been renewed. I'd like it if you developed a better class analysis and stopped going to war with people who share similar material interests as you on behalf of the ruling class. We all deserve more. I want you to get so angry about that, that you do something. So what do we do then? I want you to figure out what resources the elderly in your community need access to. I want you to help an elder do some grocery shopping. Is an elder struggling to afford prescriptions? As it stands, no one running for office is interested in even discussing universal health care. Perhaps you can help pay for their meds. Maybe do some crowdfunding. What about the single-parent households where you live? I want you to be a resource to those who are about to struggle with starting virtual learning in the fall. Can you talk to them and find out what they need? Can you and a group of your friends mobilize around that? I want y'all to get so angry about what's about to happen that you do something. So what do we do then? Well, right now we're living through a moment where more people than ever are ready to explore getting rid of one of the deadliest forces in our country, the police. At this moment, Harris wants to, quote, reimagine them, an exercise we've done before that has proven not to work, and Biden wants more of them. It's likely that with the current presence of police, your community already isn't safe. If you're a cishet man, I want you to talk to other cishet men about the ways in which women in your community are not safe and how you contribute to that. I want you to build community with trans folks in ways they don't have to initiate. I want you to study how to organize a system of protection for people who are harmed in your community and a system of accountability and restoration for those who do harm. I want to see genuine efforts for community divestment from violence and punishment. I want to see more people talking about things like communal rest and how we handle interpersonal conflict. I think it would be great if we all took some time to think about how we model ideas like abolition in our everyday lives. I want us to get so mad about this shit that we do something about it. So what do we do then? I want you to develop a better analysis of the country you live in and begin to engage it In a more ethical way, I want you to really process what it means to live at the heart of US empire. I want you to not be okay with disposing of the lives of black and brown people in the global South and Middle East for the reward of representation. I want you to interrogate why you even want to be represented as the face of death machine that is the United States. I want you to stop invoking the aesthetic of Black Panthers and other Black radicals until you understand the politic that set them on fire. I want you to be pissed off about the fact that you've never participated in a truly democratic election in your entire life. I want you to get angry about the Electoral College. I want you to stop asking me, so what are you going to do then? And maybe ask yourself what you are going to do in the event that November 2020 ends up being just like November 2016, a scenario where your favorite war criminal wins the popular vote, but still loses the election. What a proper analysis of our situation tells us is that we did not get here by some slip of a lever. Nothing about our current situation is by mistake. The path that we continue to go down is totally predictable. In fact, people have been theorizing our current reality for decades. What a proper analysis tells us is that if we don't completely halt and bring this empire to its knees, it is going to swallow the rest of the world while it simultaneously cannibalizes itself. What it tells us is that until we wake up and stop feeding the machine, nothing is going to change the only material way to stop this is to start building a new world from the ground up starting with ourselves and then in our communities our obsession with electorism is a masochistic love affair with the machine that's set to kill us and no matter how much people claim we can do both History shows us that until we prioritize organizing ourselves, we will continue to rely on presidential elections to address the societal problems that it has proven to be unequipped to fix. No matter who sits at the helm, the machine is never going to slow, turn around, or stop. It will only move forward. So please don't treat questions like, so what do we do then? Like big jokers in a game of spades. Before asking, what are y'all going to do then? Or what are the alternatives? Understand that those who fully understand the problem aren't looking for alternatives. We're trying to build something new. And we're asking you to join us. Next up is a piece written by Loretta Grassefo, and this is published at FAIR.org. That is F-A-I-R, which stands for Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. Activist voices missing from corporate coverage of uprisings. Since the brutal police murder of George Floyd, protesters for racial justice have mobilized across the country attracting a frenzy of media commentary. To gauge who got to take part in this discussion, Fair looked at whose voices were featured in some of the most prominent and influential outlets. We counted the columnists in the Washington Post and New York Times editorial sections, as well as the people interviewed on network Sunday morning political talk shows, including ABC's This Week, CBS's Face the Nation, CNN's State of the Union, Fox News Sunday, and NBC's Meet the Press. We found that establishment media overwhelmingly turned to columnists, pundits, and government officials for interpretation of the uprisings, rather than to the activists facing tear gas on the front lines. As a result, the protesters were denied the chance to present their demands in their own words, and the voices of those most impacted by police brutality went unheard. Nowhere is media's unwillingness to provide protesters with a platform more evident than in the opinion columns of the New York Times and the Washington Post, which were dominated by vague calls for justice and reform from neoliberal elites. In the three weeks after George Floyd's murder, the Post published 89 op-eds discussing race, policing, and the uprisings at length. Some of the articles were penned by more than one person, resulting in 97 authors altogether. Out of those 97 authors, 61% were columnists for the Post, and 39% were outside writers. Current or former government officials made up 34% of the Post's outside writers, academics were another 30%, and 18% were freelance journalists. 16% of the Post's guest writers worked in the criminal justice system, including Benjamin Crump, the civil rights attorney for the Floyd family, and Marilyn Mosby, the state's attorney for Baltimore. Guest columnists also included a former federal prosecutor, a public defender, a former police officer, and a former deputy chief of police. The remaining outside writer featured by The Post was Hafsa Islam, whose father owns the Minneapolis restaurant Gandhi Mahal, which caught fire during the protests. In the same three weeks, The New York Times published 83 op-eds discussing George Floyd and the protests, featuring a total of 87 writers. Out of these, 56% were Times columnists and 44% were outside sources. The times outside sources included 37 academics, 24, 37 percent academics, 24 percent freelancers, and 18 percent current or former government officials. Five percent of the outside sources were people who worked in the criminal justice system. Prosecutor Marilyn Mosby again, and former chief of police Brandon Del Pozo, while another five percent were activists. Prison abolitionist Marim, Mariam Kaba and Thanjiwe McHarris, a strategist for the movement for black lives. The remaining 11% included two medical sources, one member of the clergy, and Melody Cooper, sister of Christian Cooper, the birdwatcher who was subjected to a racist swatting attempt in Central Park. Across both papers, In a total of 172 op eds, only two organizers were afforded a platform, meaning that just 1% of the columns in the wake of these society altering protests were written by the people who instigated the protests. The Post did publish a piece by Braxton Winston, a member of the Charlotte, North Carolina City Council, about the author's experience with tear gas at a protest. Though we counted him as a government official, this was one of the few times a participant in racial justice protests was given a chance to speak for himself. Even as the post churned out numerous articles comparing today's domestic upheaval with that of the 1960s, veterans from past movements for racial justice such as the Civil Rights Movement, the Black Power Movement, the Red Power Movement, or the Chicano Movement, were not given space to share wisdom gained from their years of organizing against white supremacy. As a result of this exclusion, none of the op-eds published in the Times or the Post explored the idea of boycotts, strikes, direct action campaigns, or any other disruptive tactics protesters might use to leverage their power during this unprecedented moment. The op-ed sections of the Times and the Post were lacking not only in historical insight from organizers, but also in global insight. The police murder of George Floyd sparked uprisings against racism, police brutality, and state violence around the world, prompting countries to grapple with their colonial pasts and with ongoing inequalities exacerbated by the pandemic. But despite outpourings of solidarity from protesters across Europe, Asia, Africa, and Latin America. The Times and The Post presented exclusively U.S. perspectives. Activists weren't the only ones who were overlooked by the opinion sections of the nation's two leading papers. In the three weeks after George Floyd's murder, neither The Times nor The Post featured any op-eds written by the people who have suffered most directly at the hands of America's racist law enforcement those who have experienced police brutality, or people who have loved ones murdered by police. Nor did they evaluate the viewpoints of any people who are incarcerated, even though many incarcerated writers have been sharing their experiences publicly for years. Though many op-eds called for a nebulous, quote, reimagining of police, Neither opinion section highlighted community leaders who have for decades offered proven alternative to policing. Audiences were not given the chance to hear from former gang members who now combat gun violence through street outreach, or Aboriginal night patrols in Australia who mediate conflicts while also reducing Indigenous interactions with the criminal justice system. Instead, We heard from the usual cast of powerful incumbents who seized the opportunity to boast about their accomplishments on a national stage. The Post published op-eds by Muriel E. Bowser, Val Demings, Condoleezza Rice, David Axelrod, and a consortium of Democratic House managers in the impeachment trial of President Trump. Government officials featured by the Times included Stacey Abrams, Susan E. Rice, Tom Cotton, Gretchen Whitmer, and Keisha Lance Bottoms. Despite the fact that activists have condemned many of these officials for their contestable records on race and policing, these op-eds were presented by media without context or criticism. As investigative journalist Justine Barron previously wrote for FAIR, these op-eds, quote, give local leaders a chance to raise their national profiles without facing scrutiny. Media's reliance on government bureaucrats to shape public opinion also has the effect, as Julie Holler wrote, of, quote, placing limits of the acceptable and the possible, resulting in coverage that acknowledges the drive to defund the police, but seeks to blunt its radical edge. Even as thousands of protesters across the country flooded the streets calling for the defunding of police, editorial teams overwhelmingly gave these demands the cold shoulder. Out of 84 op-eds published by The Times in those three weeks, only three explored defunding police as a viable step forward. Likewise, out of 89 post-op-eds discussing racism and police brutality at length, only three pointed to defunding the police as a positive solution. Protesters sidelined on Sunday morning. Corporate media's unwillingness to provide protesters with a platform was also evident in the network's Sunday morning political talk shows. Out of the 54 one-on-one and roundtable guests on all networks, 63% were current or former government officials. The next most frequent guests were journalists, at 24%. Out of the 35 interviews with government officials, 12 appearances were made by current or former members of the U.S. National Security Apparatus. Three of these guests, acting DHS Secretary Chad Wolf, U.S. National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, and Attorney General William Barr, denied the irrefutable fact that there is systemic racism in law enforcement. On all three of these occasions, these false claims went virtually unchallenged by journalists who posed the question as though it were a matter of opinion. One former government official interviewed on Fox News Sunday was Andy Skoogman, the current executive director of the, at the Minnesota Chiefs of Police Association. On Scoogman's LinkedIn page, he describes himself as a, quote, strategic communications specialist who helps organizations simplify their complicated issues and manage a crisis. In other words, he works in PR as a paid spokesperson for police. Only 12% of the guests were not journalists or affiliated with the government. Academics were featured twice across all networks, making up 4% of the interviews. This included an interview with Dr. Cornell West on Fox News Sunday, in an interview with Lonnie Bunch III, founding director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, on NBC's Meet the Press. People representing public interest groups made up 4% of the courage, including Maria Teresa Kumar, president of Voto Latino, who appeared on NBC's Meet the Press, and Patrick Gaspard, president of Open Society Foundations, interviewed on ABC's This Week. The remaining two guests were Floyd family attorney Benjamin Crump, who appeared on CBS's Face the Nation, and Alicia Garza, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter, who appeared on NBC's Meet the Press. Across all networks, Garza was the only person affiliated with Black Lives Matter who was given time to speak. The problem lies not only in which guests are afforded a platform, but also in the framing of the coverage and the questions that were asked. Throughout all the coverage, there was a heavy focus on whether the protests were violent or non-violent, rather than on the demands of the protesters. Protests that targeted property were rarely referred to in neutral terms, a subtle way of limiting the range of acceptable opinion. An instance of this occurred on ABC's This Week when journalist Martha Raditz referred to quote, inexcusable criminal looting as if it should go without saying that such behavior must be condemned and punished. Though many organizers and academics have argued that looting is a justifiable form of protest and an empire built on the looting of black and indigenous people, this perspective was left out of the conversation. Most networks also denounced the Trump administration's violent suppression of protesters, but the government officials responsible for deploying tear gas, tanks, and secret police were given ample airtime on network news to defend their use of these methods, while protesters who supported destroying property were not. Though a significant amount of the media's coverage fixated on the possibility of quote, outside agitators, Antifa, and the quote radical left hijacking the uprisings, these shows made no effort to investigate these claims by actually interviewing the people protesting on the streets about what brought them there. Instead, protesters' voices were reduced to 10 second sound bites, mostly chants, in the news packages at the introduction of each broadcast. This disconnect from the social organizing on the ground was made especially evident when CBS's Margaret Brennan asked Washington Post reporter Wesley Lowry, who has spent much of his career reporting on police violence and ensuing protests, about what activists were saying, rather than providing space for activists to speak for themselves. Quote, Brennan, I know you have been on the phone and speaking with some of the activists who are in the streets and cities around the country. What are they telling you? Lowry. You know, we're in this moment right now where all of us are asking, how do we stop what's happening in the streets? And what the activists are saying is, you all haven't been listening to us. The media missed the message. The George Floyd protests are far from the only time. The corporate media has sidelined the voices of the people in favor of uplifting elites. Past FAIR studies have revealed that media consistently neglect to consult those most impacted by the policies being discussed, whether marginalizing immigrant voices in debates on family separation or ignoring school workers in coverage about schools reopening. The gulf between media and the public was laid bare during the recent uprisings in Atlanta, where protesters mounted a CNN sign, raised a Black Lives Matter flag, and broke down the doors of CNN's headquarters, where a standoff with police ensued. For the duration of this incident, CNN's team remained behind police lines, a questionable decision, considering that the police have posed a far greater threat to journalists during the uprisings than protesters'. To his credit, CNN reporter Nick Valencia did attempt to interview a demonstrator who was being hauled away by the police, but moments after, he stated, quote, This is where we go to work every day, journalists who are trying to tell the truth, trying to deliver information. These demonstrators have decided to come here today to take out their frustration and their anger, not just on the police, but it seems on our CNN center as well. Valencia can be forgiven for not analyzing the motivations of the crowd while the confrontation was unfolding. But even after the incident, media failed to explore why CNN might be the target of such opposition, portraying it as an act of senseless vandalism and rage, rather than a purposeful condemnation of CNN, corporate elites, or media coverage of the uprisings. In most coverage of that night, the fact that the CNN Center also hosts a precinct of the Atlanta Police Department went unmentioned and protesters, quote, fuck CNN chants, went unaddressed. Later that night, as rapper Killer Mike delivered an impassioned plea for calm at a press conference alongside the mayor of Atlanta, he added, quote, I love CNN, but I'd like to say to CNN right now. Karma's a mother. Stop feeding fear and anger every day. Stop making people feel so fearful. Give them hope. But as independent journalist Habib Bata pointed out in a piece for Jacobin, this criticism was cut out of CNN's website and edited out of rebroadcasts. In the Jacobin piece headlined, Why Haven't We Heard from Racial Justice Protesters in Their Own Words, Bada recounts a 2019 revolt in Lebanon. During these uprisings, Lebanese news channels amplified the voices of thousands of ordinary citizens with virtually no censorship, a phenomenon that he dubbed an open mic revolution. The result, he wrote, was that, quote, Lebanese audiences heard a wide range of testimonies from people otherwise kept off television screens. Workers, students, teachers, and mothers gave their own tearful accounts of injustice and everyday corruption. They were poetic, witty, and downright crude insults and chants leveled at the country's politicians and political parties. Names were named. Expletives went uncensored sitting in front of your television at home. It felt like you were right there, in the square. Moments like this in U.S. media are uncommon, Bada points out, and when the protesters' demands are amplified, it's often because they fought for it themselves. Such as was the case when activist Kendrick Sampson physically placed himself between an ABC reporter and a police commander being interviewed on the street, providing a counter-narrative to police propaganda for nearly 10 minutes. Reading Bada's account of ordinary people's anguished cries for justice, we could not help but think of Oluwatoyin Salau, a 19-year-old Black Lives Matter activist from Tallahassee who made headlines after a local man sexually assaulted her and murdered her. Much of the coverage surrounding Salau's murder included a video of her during the uprisings. The footage offers a rare glimpse of what an open-mic revolution might look like in America. In it, Salau stands in front of the Tallahassee Police Department and looks directly at the camera, her voice hoarse with grief, as she expresses something that no columnist or pundit can. Quote, Wherever the fuck I go, I am profiled. Look at my fucking hair. Look at my skin, bro. I can't take this shit off. So guess what? I'm going to die by it. I'm going to die by my fucking skin. You cannot take my blackness away from me. My blackness is not for your fucking consumption. Salao's testimony is raw and striking, but it's safe to say that if not for her murder, the footage would not have been aired at all. Most of the time, media do not afford Black Lives Matter protesters the opportunity to express their pain and their vision for two whole minutes without commentary or interruption. Next up is a piece published in TeenVogue.com written by Shyam Gallian. The Case for Abolishing the Department of Homeland Security. The videos of armed men in fatigues picking protesters off the streets and shoving them into unmarked vans are the stuff of nightmares. That's how the federal government has responded to Black Lives Matter demonstrations. They continue to advocate for racial justice and demand real solutions to community safety. Both the department of Homeland security, DHS and the department of justice, DOJ have deployed agents in an effort to protect federal property and crack down on crime respectively. The Trump administration frames this as its response to violence born of anti-police rhetoric in the bigger picture. DHS and DOJ are institutions working to carry out the War on Terror and the War on Drugs, and their policing efforts are extensive across the United States, in the U.S. borderlands, and abroad. During this national conversation on policing and its abolition, we must push for the abolition of all the appendages of the War on Terror and the War on Drugs, including Department of Homeland Security. The War on Drugs began with President Nixon in the early 1970s. One of his former aides later claimed it was launched in response to the Black Power and pacifist movements. It criminalized Black and brown people and was used to justify mass incarceration. This war was later taken beyond U.S. borders and became part of a decades-long story of U.S. intervention in the political affairs of various Latin American countries. This international crackdown on drugs was still underway when George W. Bush's administration launched the War on Terror in the aftermath of 9-11. This new front served as a pretext to invade and occupy Iraq and Afghanistan and expand the security state. Outwardly, the War on Terror has cast Muslims as a primary terror threat. But in reality, it identifies anyone who opposes the U.S. government's interests as a terror threat. For example, Black Lives Matter activists have been investigated by the FBI as, quote, Black identity extremists, while Trump has labeled anti-fascist protesters terrorists. Together, the war on terror and the war on drugs have given the government a blank check to maintain and expand a militarized U.S. presence not just around the world, but also along U.S. borders and within U.S. communities that are seen as threatening to the status quo. They are a central framework used to justify surveillance, intimidation, and the erosion of civil liberties. Department of Homeland Security was first established after 9-11 and quickly grew to be an expansive and sophisticated security apparatus. Reports of tactical DHS agents in Portland, Oregon, clashing with Black Lives Matter protesters, caused a national outcry. Some theorized the U.S. government was using Portland as a testing ground for how it would respond to BLM protests across the country. Others were perturbed by the theatrics of it all with the New York Times calling to, quote, leave the soldiering to soldiers. The reality is the federal agent response in Portland is an extension of the kind of tactics they use at the border. What the ACLU has referred to as the, quote, kidnapping of BLM protesters is not so different from the Immigrations and Customs Enforcement officers using coercive measures to pull immigrants from their homes late at night and detain them. After all, ICE is a sub-agency of DHS. In a show of grotesque force, we've seen DHS agents forcefully separate families at the border and place migrants in detention camps. These agencies traffic in fear and operate with near impunity. While scenes from Portland scared white America, they are nothing new for immigrants, black people, undocumented folks, and Muslims. It's worth taking a moment to distinguish between the distinct operations the government has deployed in recent weeks. The DHS agents dispatched to Portland through Operation Diligent Valor were specifically tasked with protecting U.S. government buildings during protests, as Politico reported. Operation Legend, a multi-agency initiative, has recently expanded to cities including Cleveland, Milwaukee, and Detroit which Attorney General Bill Barr said, quote, are experiencing upticks in violent crime. Both of these operations seem to be a response to protesters' anti-police activism, as members of the administration have used recent riots and protests as the explanation for increased violence in cities. But there seems to be less alarm about the general crime-fighting focus of Operation Legend. There are likely two reasons for this. One, the distinction between these operations is confusing. Two, it is easier for many people to recognize the neat narrative of federal agents repressing protesters than it is to understand the systemic criminalization of black and brown communities. It is systemic criminalization that the Black Lives Matter movement is asking us to oppose with calls to abolish the police and invest in life-affirming resources by taking to the streets and confronting local and federal forces. The Black Lives Matter uprising is making it painfully clear how policing on U.S. streets, at the U.S. border and abroad is interconnected. In a time when people are calling for the abolition of police and prisons, it is no surprise that the federal agencies and leaders would use this moment to build up its tough-on-crime rhetoric. Also, unsurprisingly, they do so without addressing any of the likely root causes of crime, like rising unemployment and job insecurity due to the failed government response to the pandemic. We cannot allow the U.S. security state to police and surveil as it does. Our vision for abolishing the police fundamentally includes the call to abolish ICE in DHS. We can't settle for anything less if we want a world without policing. And finally, here is a piece from indigenousaction.org Voting is not harm reduction, an indigenous perspective. When proclamations are made that, quote, voting is harm reduction, it's never clear how less harm is actually calculated. Do we compare how many millions of undocumented indigenous peoples have been deported? Do we add up what political party conducted more drone strikes? Or who had the highest military budget? Do we factor in pipelines, mines, dams, sacred sites desecration? Do we balance incarceration rates? Do we compare sexual violence statistics? Is it in the massive budgets of politicians who spend hundreds of millions of dollars competing for votes? Though there are some political distinctions between the two prominent parties in the so-called United States, they all pledge their allegiance to the same flag. Red or blue, they're both still stripes on a rag waving over stolen lands that comprise a country built By stolen lives. We don't dismiss the reality that on the scale of U.S. settler colonial violence, even the slightest degree of harm can mean life or death for those most vulnerable. What we assert here is that the entire notion of voting as harm reduction obscures and perpetuates settler colonial violence. There is nothing less harmful about it and there are more effective ways to intervene in its violences. At some point, the left in the so-called United States realized that convincing people to rally behind a lesser evil was a losing strategy. The term harm reduction was appropriated to reframe efforts to justify their participation and coerce others to engage in the theater of what is called democracy in the U.S., Harm reduction was established in the 1980s as a public health strategy for people dealing with substance use issues who struggle with abstinence. According to the Harm Reduction Coalition, the principles of harm reduction establish that the identified behavior is part of life, so they choose not to ignore or condemn, but to minimize the harmful effects and work towards breaking social stigmas towards safer use. The Harm Reduction Coalition also states that, There is no universal definition of or formula for implementing harm reduction. Overall, harm reduction focuses on reducing adverse impacts associated with harmful behaviors. The proposition of harm reduction in the context of voting means something entirely different from those organizing to address substance use issues. The assertion is that, quote, since this political system isn't going away, we'll support politicians and laws that may do less harm. The idea of a ballot being capable of reducing the harm in a system rooted in colonial domination and exploitation, white supremacy, heteropatriarchy, and capitalism is an extraordinary exaggeration. There is no person whose lives aren't impacted every day by these systems of oppression. But instead of a coded reformism and coercive get-out-the-vote campaigns towards a quote safer form of settler colonialism, we're asking, what is the real and tragic harm and danger associated with perpetuating colonial power and what can be done to end it? Voting as practiced under US quote, democracy is a process with which people, excluding youth under the age of eighteen, convicted felons, those in the state deems mentally incompetent and undocumented folks, including permanent legal residents, are coerced to choose narrowly prescribed rules and rulers. The anarchist collective crime think observes quote Voting consolidates the power of a whole society in the hands of a few politicians. When this process is conducted under colonial authority, there is no option but political death for indigenous peoples. In other words, voting can never be a survival strategy under colonial rule. It is a strategy of defeat and victimhood that protracts the suffering and historical harm induced by ongoing settler colonialism. And while the harm reduction sentiment may be sincere, even hard-won marginal reforms gained through popular support can be just as easily reversed by the stroke of a politician's pen. If voting is a democratic participation in our own oppression, voting as harm reduction is a politics that keeps us at the mercy of our oppressors. While so many on the left, including some indigenous radicals, are concerned with consolidation of power into fascist hands, they fail to recognize how colonial power is already consolidated. There is nothing intersectional about participating in and maintaining a genocidal political system. There is no meaningful solidarity to be found in a politics that urges us to meet our oppressors where they're at. Voting as harm reduction imposes a false solidarity upon those identified to be most vulnerable to harmful political policies and actions. In practice, it plays out as paternalistic identity politicking as liberals work to identify the least dangerous candidates and rally to support their campaigns. The logic of voting as harm reduction asserts that whoever is facing the most harm will gain the most protection by the least dangerous denominator in a violently authoritarian system. This settler colonial naivete places more people, non-human beings, and land at risk than otherwise. Most typically the same liberal activists that claim voting is harm reduction are found denouncing and attempting to suppress militant direct actions and sabotage as acts that, quote, only harm our movement. Voting as harm reduction is the pacifying language of those who police movements. Voting as harm reduction is the government-issued blanket of the Democratic Party. We're either going to sleep or die in it. To organize from a position that voting is an act of damage limitation blurs lines of the harm that settler resource and resource colonialism imposes. Under colonial occupation, all power operates through violence. There is absolutely nothing less harmful about participating in and perpetuating the political power of occupying forces. Voting won't undo settler colonialism, white supremacy, heteropatriarchy or capitalism voting is not a strategy for decolonization the entire process that arrived at the quote native vote was an imposition of US political identity on indigenous peoples fueled by white supremacy and facilitated by capitalism the native vote a strategy of colonial domination Prior to settler colonial invasion, indigenous peoples maintained diverse, complex cultural organizations that were fairly unrecognizable to European invaders. From its inception, the U.S. recognized that indigenous peoples comprised distinct sovereign nations. The projection of nation status was committed on the terms of the colonizers who needed political entities to treaty with primarily for war and economic purposes. As a result, social organizations of indigenous peoples faced extreme political manipulation as matriarchal and two-spirit roles were either completely disregarded or outright attacked. The imperative of the U.S. settler colonial project has always been to undermine and destroy indigenous sovereignty. This is the insidious un-nature of colonialism In 1493 the papal bull Inter was issued by Pope Alexander VI The document established the doctrine of discovery and was central to Spain's christianizing strategy to ensure exclusive right to enslaved indigenous peoples and lands invaded by Columbus the year prior This decree also made clear the Pope's threat to forcibly assimilate indigenous peoples to Catholicism in order to strengthen the quote, Christian empire. This doctrine led to successive generational patterns of genocidal and ecocidal wars waged by European settler colonizers against indigenous lives, lands, spirit, and the living world of all our relations. In 1823, the Doctrine of Discovery was written into U.S. law as a way to deny land rights to indigenous peoples in the Supreme Court case, Johnson v. McIntosh. In a unanimous decision, Chief Justice John Marshall wrote that Christian European nations had assumed complete control over the lands of America during the, quote, Age of Discovery. And in declaring independence from the Crown of England in 1776, He noted, that the U.S. had in effect, and thus by law, inherited authority authority over these lands from Great Britain, notwithstanding the occupancy of the natives who were heathens. According to the ruling, indigenous peoples did not have any rights as independent nations, but only as tenants or residents of the U.S. on their own lands. To this day, the doctrine of discovery has not been repudiated and Johnson v. McIntosh has not been overruled. The genealogy of the native vote is tied to boarding schools, Christian indoctrination, allotment programs, and global wars that established U.S. imperialism. U.S. assimilation policies were not designed as a benevolent form of harm reduction. They were an extension of a military strategy, that couldn't fulfill its genocidal programs. Citizenship was forced onto Indigenous peoples as part of a colonial strategy to, quote, kill the Indian and save the man. There was a time when Indigenous peoples wanted nothing to do with U.S. citizenship and voting. Catherine Osborne, an ethno-historian at Arizona State University, states, quote, Indigenous polities hold a government-to-government relationship with the United States. Thus, their political status is unique, and that means that they are not just another minority group hoping for inclusion in the U.S. political order. For indigenous communities, protecting their sovereignty as tribal nations is a paramount political concern. When the U.S. Constitution was initially created, each state could determine who could be citizens at their discretion. Some states rarely granted citizenship and thereby conferred the status to select indigenous peoples, but only if they dissolved their tribal relationships and became, quote, civilized. This typically meant that they renounced their tribal affiliation, paid taxes, and fully assimilated into white society. Alexandra Whitkin writes in To Silence a Drum, The Imposition of United States Citizenship on Native Peoples, quote, Early citizenship policy rested upon the assumption that allegiance could only be given to one nation, thus peoples with an allegiance to a native nation could not become citizens of the United States. The preference, though, was not to respect and uphold indigenous sovereignty, but to condemn it as, quote, uncivilized and undermine it through extreme tactics of forced assimilation. When the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was ratified in 1868, it granted citizenship only to men born or naturalized in the U.S. This included former slaves, but was interpreted not to apply to indigenous peoples except for those who assimilated and paid taxes. The 15th Amendment was subsequently passed in 1870 to ensure the right of U.S. citizens to vote without discrimination of race, color or previous condition of servitude but was still interpreted to exclude indigenous peoples who did not assimilate in some ways this was an act of disenfranchisement but more clearly it was a condition imposed upon indigenous peoples facing scorched earth military campaigns and the threat of mass death marches to concentration camps the message was clear assimilate or perish In 1887, U.S. Congress passed the General Allotment Act, more commonly known as the Dawes Act, which was designated to expedite colonial invasion, facilitate resource extraction, and to further assimilate indigenous peoples into the colonial social order. The Dawes Act marked a shift from military strategy to an economic and political one, where reservations were separated into individual lots, with only male heads of households to receive 160 acres, with any remaining lands put up for sale to white invaders who flocked in droves to inherit their quote, manifest destiny. Indigenous peoples who accepted allotments could receive U.S. citizenship, and although this was the first congressional act to provide the status, it came at the expense of sacrificing indigenous peoples' cultural and political identities in many ways, particularly by further fracturing the integrity of indigenous matriarchal societies. Under the Dawes Act, indigenous lands were reduced from 138 million to 52 million acres. In 1890, the overall indigenous population was reduced to about 250,000 from tens of millions at the time of the initial European invasion. In contrast, the colonizers' U.S. population had increased to 62,622,250 the same year. The legal destruction of indigenous sovereign nations was fulfilled in Supreme Court decisions by Judge John Marshall, who wrote in 1831 that the Cherokee Nation was not a foreign nation, but rather that, quote, they may, more correctly perhaps, be denominated domestically dependent nations. Their relationship to the United States resembles that of a ward to its guardian. The U.S.'s genocidal military campaigns, known collectively as the Indian Wars, supposedly came to an end in 1924. That same year, U.S. Congress passed the Indian Citizenship Act, ICA, which granted citizenship to indigenous peoples, but still allowed for states to determine if they could vote. As a result, some states barred indigenous peoples from voting until 1957. Until passage of the ICA, which was a regulatory action approved with no hearings, indigenous peoples were considered domestic subjects of the U.S. government. The the Haudenosaunee Confederacy completely rejected imposition of U.S. citizenship through the IAC, and called it an act of treason. Joseph Heath, General Counsel of the Onondaga Nation, writes, quote, The Onondaga Nation and the Howden have never accepted the authority of the United States to make six nations' citizens become citizens of the United States, as claimed in the Citizenship Act of 1924. We hold three treaties with the United States, 1784 Treaty of Fort Stanwix, the 1789 Treaty of Fort Harmer, and the 1794 Treaty of Canandaigua. These treaties clearly recognize the Haudenosaunee as separate and sovereign nations. Accepting United States citizenship would be treason to their own nations, a violation of the treaties, and a violation of international law. They rejected the ICA and resisted its implementation immediately after its adoption because they had the historical and cultural understanding that it was merely the latest federal policy aimed at taking their lands and at forced assimilation. Heath further adds, For over four centuries, the Haudenosaunee have maintained their sovereignty against the onslaught of colonialism and assimilation and they have continued with their duties as stewards of the natural world. They have resisted removal and allotment. They have preserved their language and culture. They have not accepted the dictates of Christian churches, and they have rejected forced citizenship. It is important to note, and paradoxical, that the colonizing architects of the U.S. Constitution were influenced heavily by the Haudenosaunee confederacy zane jane gordon of the wyandot nation critiqued the ica at the time it was passed quote no government organized can incorporate into its citizenship anybody or bodies without the former formal consent the indians are organized in the form of nations and it has treaties with the other nations as such Congress cannot embrace them into citizenship of the Union by a simple act. In challenging American boundaries, indigenous people, and the, quote, gift of U.S. citizenship, Kevin Boyneal writes that Tuscarora Chief Clinton Rickard, who strongly opposed the passage of the ICA, quote, was also encouraged by the fact that there was no great rush among my people to go out and vote in white man's elections. Rickard stated, by our ancient treaties, we expected the protection of the government. The white man had obtained most of our land and we felt he was obliged to provide something in return, which was protection of the land we had left. But we did not want to be absorbed and assimilated into his society. United States citizenship was just another way of absorbing us and destroying our customs and our government. We feared citizenship would also put our treaty status in jeopardy and bring taxes upon our land. How can a citizen have a treaty with his own government? This was a violation of our sovereignty. Our citizenship was in our own nations. Haudenosaunee also voiced opposition to imposition of U.S. citizenship policies due to separation of their nation by the Canadian border. These impacts are still faced by indigenous peoples whose lands are bisected by both the Canadian and Mexican borders. The imposition of citizenship has politically segregated their people along colonial lines. Perhaps one of the clearest illustrations of assimilationist strategies regarding citizenship and voting comes from Henry S. Pancoast, one of the founders of the Christian white supremacist group, the Indian rights association. Pancost stated, quote, Nothing, besides United States citizenship, will so tend to assimilate the Indian and break up his narrow tribal allegiance as making him feel that he has a distinct right and voice in the white man's nation. The IRA's initial stated objective was to, quote, bring about the complete civilization of the Indians and their admission to citizenship. The IRA considered themselves reformists and successfully lobbied Congress to establish the boarding school system, pass the Dawes Act, reform the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and pass the Indian Reorganization Act of 1834. U.S. citizenship was imposed to destroy indigenous sovereignty and facilitate mass scale land theft. To this day, the native vote is bound to assimilationist conditions that serve colonial interests. Assimilation, the strategy of enfranchisement Historic acts of voter suppression appear to contradict the strategy of assimilation. After all, if white settler politicians desired so much for indigenous peoples to become citizens, why then would they actively disenfranchise them at the same time? This is the underlying contradiction of colonialism in the U.S. that has been articulated as the, quote, Indian problem, or more bluntly, the question of annihilation or assimilation. As previously mentioned, it wasn't until 1957 that indigenous peoples could vote in every U.S. state. According to Catherine Osborne, quote, some states borrowed the language of the U.S. Constitution in Article 1, Section 2, which bars Indians not taxed from citizenship and used it to deny voting rights. Legislators in Idaho, Maine, Mississippi, New Mexico, and Washington withheld the franchise from their indigenous citizens because those who were living on reservation lands did not pay property taxes. In New Mexico, Utah, and Arizona, state officials argued that living on a reservation meant that Indians were not actually residents of the state, which prevented their political participation. Osborne adds Article 7, Section 2 of the Arizona Constitution stated no person under guardianship, non compos mentis, or insane, shall be qualified to vote in any election. Arizona lawmakers understood this as prohibiting Indians from voting because they were allegedly under federal guardianship on their reservations. Early U.S. citizenship policy regarding indigenous peoples was clear. Disenfranchisement would remain until we assimilated and abandoned our tribal statuses. Disenfranchisement was and is a strategy that sets conditions for assimilation. Suppression of political participation has historically been the way the system regulates and maintains itself. White supremacists that controlled the politics of areas where large indigenous populations feared that they would become minority subjects in their own democratic system. They often subverted enfranchisement in violent ways, but this was never really a threat due to how embedded white supremacy has been in the totality of the U.S. settler colonial project. It's not that settler society has capitulated to indigenous interests, it's that indigenous peoples, whether through force or attrition, have been subsumed into the U.S. polity. Perhaps no place is this more clear than through the establishment of tribal councils. For example, in 1923, the Navajo Tribal Council was created in order to legitimize resource extraction by the U.S. government. According to a report filed by the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, the Tribal Council was, quote, created in part so that oil companies would have some legitimate representatives of the Navajos through whom they could lease reservation lands on which oil had been discovered. The Navajo Nation Oil and Gas Company's website states, quote, In 1923, a Navajo tribal government was established primarily for the Bureau of Indian Affairs to approve lease agreements with American oil companies who were eager to begin oil operations on Navajo lands. In order to fulfill and maintain colonial domination and exploitation, colonizers shape and control the political identity of indigenous peoples. Capitalists facilitated and preyed on the dissolution of indigenous autonomy. The cost of citizenship has always been our sovereignty. The conditions of citizenship have always been in service to white supremacy. That indigenous peoples were granted the right to vote in 1924, yet our religious practices were outlawed until 1979, is one of many examples of the incongruency of indigenous political identity in the so-called U.S. Suffrage movements in the U.S. have fought for equal participation in the political system, but have failed to indict and abolish the systems of oppression that underpin settler colonial society. After decades of organizing, white women celebrated suffrage in 1920, which was granted in part as a reward for their service in World War I. Heteropatriarchy was not dismantled and black folks were purposefully disregarded in their campaigning. Lucy Parsons, an Afro-Indigenous anarchist, was among many who critiqued suffrage at the time. Parsons wrote in 1905, Can you blame an anarchist who declares that man-made laws are not sacred? The fact is money and not votes is what rules the people. And the capitalists no longer care to buy the voters, they simply buy the servants after they have been elected to serve. The idea that the poor man's vote amounts to anything is the veriest delusion. The ballot is only the paper veil that hides the tricks. Black folks suffered decades of white supremacist Jim Crow laws that enforced racial segregation and were designed to suppress their political power. These racist laws didn't end until the powerful mobilizations of the Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s. The U.S. government handed down legislation in the 50s and 60s, including the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which was critiqued by the revolutionary black nationalists such as Malcolm X. Quote, the ballot or the bullet. If you're afraid to use an expression like that, you should get out of the country. You should get back in the cotton patch. You should get back in the alley. They get all the Negro vote, and after they get it, the Negro gets nothing in return. Radical movements have either faced extreme state violence and repression or have been systematically assimilated into the U.S. political milieu. The nonprofit industrial complex has operated as an unspoken ally of U.S. imperialism in efforts of suppression and pacification. Perhaps this is the U.S. political machinery's method of reducing harm or impact from effective social and environmental justice movements. If they can't kill or imprison the organizers, then fold them into the bureaucracy or turn their struggles into businesses. At the end of the day, not everyone can be white supremacists, but everyone can be capitalists. So long as a political and economic system remains intact, voter enfranchisement, though perhaps resisted by overt white supremacists, is still welcomed so long as nothing about the overall political arrangement fundamentally changes. The facade of political equality can occur under violent occupation, but liberation cannot be found in the occupier's ballot box. In the context of settler colonialism, voting is the, quote, civic duty of maintaining our own oppression. It is intrinsically bound to a strategy of extinguishing our cultural identities and autonomy. The ongoing existence of indigenous peoples is a greatest threat to the U.S. settler colonial project, that we may one day rise up and assert our sovereign position with our lands in refutation of the doctrine of discovery. In Custer Died for Your Sins, Vine Deloria Jr. idealized, quote, Indigenous peoples not as passive recipients of civil rights and incorporation into the nation-state, but as colonized peoples actively demanding decolonization. You can't decolonize the ballot. Since the idea of U.S. democracy is majority rule, barring an extreme population surge, indigenous voters will always be at the mercy of good-intentioned political allies. Consolidating the native vote into a voting block that aligns with whatever settler party, politician, or law that appears to do less harm isn't a strategy to exercise political power. It's Stockholm Syndrome. The native vote also seeks to produce native politicians. And what better way to assimilate rule than with a familiar face? The strategy of voting indigenous peoples into a colonial power structure is not an act of decolonization. It is a fulfillment of it. We have a history of our people being used against us by colonial forces, particularly with assimilated indigenous peoples acting as, quote, Indian scouts to aid the enemy's military. In only one recorded instance, in day army scouts mutinied against the U.S. when they were asked to fight their own people. Three of the Inde scouts were executed as a result. No matter what you are led to believe by any politician seeking office, at the end of the day, they are sworn to uphold an oath to the very system that was designed to destroy us and our ways of life. The oath for members of Congress states I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely, without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I am about to enter, so help me God." Even if we assume that their cultural values and intentions are in line with those of the people. It is rare that politicians are not tied to a string of funders. As soon as they get elected, they are also faced with unrelenting special interest lobbying groups that have millions and millions of dollars behind them, and even if they have stated the best intentions, are inevitably outnumbered by their political peers. Today, we have candidates that were elected making promises to stop the mass-scale kidnapping and murdering of indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people. And what do they propose? They don't indict the resource colonizers destroying our lands whose very industry is precipitating this crisis of human trafficking and extreme gender violence. They don't propose ending capitalism and resource colonialism. They propose laws and more cops with more power to enforce those laws in our communities. So although we have an epidemic of police violence and murders against our peoples, indigenous politicians address one violent crisis by making another one worse for our people. It's the fulfillment of the assimilationist cultural genocide of, quote, killing the Indian to save the man. With that vote, the willful participation and sanctioning on the violence of this system you kill the Indian and become the man tribal local and regional politics are situated in the same colonial arrangement that benefits the ruling class politicians are concerned with rules and ruling police and military and force judges in prison regardless of who and on what scale no politician can ever represent indigenous life ways within the context of a political system established by colonialism. A less harmful form of colonial occupation is fantasy. The process of colonial undoing will not occur by voting. You cannot decolonize the ballot. Rejecting settler colonial authority a.k.a not voting voting in the colonizers elections keeps indigenous peoples powerless our power broadly speaking does not come from non-consensual majority rule top-down man-made laws but is derived in relation with and proportion to all living beings this is a corporeal and spiritual power that has been in effect since the time immemorial and is what has kept indigenous peoples alive in the face of more than 500 years of extreme colonial violence. The late Ben Carnes, a powerful Choctaw advocate, is quoted in an article about the native vote by Mark Maxey, stating, quote, My position is that I am not a citizen of a government who perpetuates that lie that we are. Slavery was legal just as well as Jim Crow, but just because it is law doesn't make it right. We didn't ask for it. The Citizenship Act was imposed upon us as another step in their social and mental conditioning of Native people. To confiscate them of their identity was also a legislative method of circumventing the Indians Not Taxed Clause of the Constitution, thereby justifying imposing taxes." The U.S. electoral system is a very diseased method where candidates can be purchased by the highest corporate contributor, bidder. The mentality of voting for the lesser of two evils is a false standard to justify the existence of only a two-party system. Checks and balances are lacking to ensure that public servants abide by the will of the people. The entire thing needs to be scrapped, as well as the government itself. Voting will never be harm reduction, while colonial occupation and U.S. imperialism reigns. In order to heal, we have to stop the harm from occurring, not lessen it. This doesn't mean simply abstinence or ignoring the problem until it just goes away. It means developing and implementing strategies and maneuvers that empower indigenous peoples' autonomy. Since we cannot expect those selected to rule in this system to make decisions that benefit our lands and peoples, we have to do it ourselves. Direct action, or the unmediated expression of individual or collective desire, has always been the most effective means by which we change the conditions of our communities. What do we get out of voting that we cannot directly provide for ourselves and our people? What ways can we organize and make decisions that are in harmony with our diverse life ways? What ways can the immense amount of material resources and energy focused on persuading people to vote be redirected into services and support that we actually need? What ways can we direct our energy, individually and collectively, into efforts that have immediate impact in our lives and the lives of those around us? This is not only a moral, but a practical position, and so we embrace our contradictions. We're not rallying for a perfect prescription for decolonization or a multitude of indigenous nationalisms, but for a great undoing of the settler colonial project that comprises the United States of America, so that we may restore healthy and just relations with Mother Earth and all her beings. Our tendency is towards autonomous anti-colonial struggles that intervene and attack the critical infrastructure that the U.S. and its institutions rest on. Interestingly enough, these are the areas of our homelands under greatest threat by resource colonialism. This is where the system is most prone to rupture. It is the fragility of colonial power. Our enemies are only as powerful as the infrastructure that sustains them, The brutal result of forced assimilation is that we know our enemies better than they know themselves. What strategies and actions can we devise to make it impossible for this system to govern on stolen land? We aren't advocating for a state-based solution, red-washed European politic or some other colonial fantasy of utopia. In our rejection of the abstraction of settler colonialism, we don't aim to seize colonial state power, but to abolish it. We seek nothing but total liberation. And that'll wrap up this episode of Howie 2020. Remember, you can check out all the back episodes at Bernie-2020.com. You can follow on Twitter at BernieUS2020. Here is Ryan Harvey with the song Don't Just Vote. Thanks for listening. <laughs>
2: John Kerry ain't my candidate Both him and Bush are irrelevant It's not the man, it's the system of control Your vote is just a blinder The last few centuries are your reminder It's never given anything back to you They give us a few choices On which we waste our voices But it doesn't matter which one gets picked. The only change that the vote will bring Is the rich white man that's profiting It's been the same since 1776 enough to fall for it won't sit back and watch history repeat two candidates one outcome capitalist oppression this year I am voting in the streets yeah if we don't take action we're in line for subjection they're after me and they're after you our goal Theirs is a free planet Theirs is a free market We are the many They are just the few So vote if you want to Don't think their words will come true They never have and they never will Someone we all respected They'd probably just get silenced or killed Corporations cut the deals Politicians make it legal It's been that way throughout our history But people built all nations Not corporations Let's redefine what it means to be free